anyway, that one thing led to another. He ended up liquidating some other real estate uh, and then made cash donations, ended up being a $50 million donor. Welcome back to One Visit Away with your host, Kevin Fitzpatrick. This show focuses on true stories of philanthropy in order to understand what it takes to succeed in major gift fundraising. Listen to these stories and you'll realize you're just one visit away from a transformational experience for your benefactors and your organization. If you've listened to this podcast for more than 10 seconds, you know that my entire goal is to get you to schedule more visits. Most major gift fundraisers fail in this industry because they do not do the difficult, scary work of scheduling visits with the right people consistently. The majority of my success in major gifts came from constantly seeking to become as effective as possible at scheduling visits. I read tons of sales books, watched YouTube videos from sales experts, and studied Jerry Pandas' materials on the matter. On top of that, I practiced. The things I learned from experts gave me the confidence to actually make the calls. Today, I have a great resource that I highly recommend you download. Greg Warner from MarketSmart, this episode's sponsor, has put together a guide to help you schedule more visits. It's titled, Top 10 Tips for Landing More Meetings. Not only does Greg run a company that enables major gift fundraisers to be more effective, but he is a successful entrepreneur that has scheduled countless meetings and been on the receiving end of many people trying to schedule meetings with him. He knows a thing or two about this subject and provides 10 great tips, starting with a quote from someone you know I talk about on this podcast all the time, Jerry Panis. Greg is the real deal, and this guide will help you schedule more visits. Go download it now at imarketsmart.com forward slash more meetings. That's imarketsmart.com forward slash more meetings. The bonus tip, number 11, is my personal favorite. Let me know what you think. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to One Visit Away. This week, we have another incredible guest, Roy Jones. Uh, many of you have listened to our episode with Andrew Olson. Well, Andrew and Roy have done some work together. They've authored two books together, and Roy is uh, extremely successful major gift fundraiser. He's been doing this for over 35 years now and has raised tons of money. Um, when he was the VP of development at Mercy, Mercy Ships, uh, they, while he was there, went from a budget of around $40 million a year to more than $80 million, and they raised an additional $197 million for a capital campaign. Roy has been doing this a long time and has tons of incredible stories, um, so I know you're going to enjoy this one. Thanks so much for listening, and here is Roy Jones. So, Roy, if you could just tell everybody a little bit about yourself and what you do, and uh, yeah, let's start there. Yeah, well, we uh, um, have been—I've been doing major gift work for for probably uh, thirty-five plus years, and, and wow, you know, I'm one of these unique guys. I started out in the political fundraising world. And uh, in those days, uh, it was quite a bit different than today. Um, we would spend time uh, uh, actually working. Um, you know, I'm just thinking about the political fundraising. You know, I really date myself here. I worked in the Bush Quail presidential campaign in 1992. <laughs> and 
but but if, hey if, hey if, if you really want to feel bad about how long ago that was that was the year i was born there you go there you go so i'm really dating myself here but uh but in those days you know we would spend time in the office of public liaison um and uh set up meetings for the president and then uh on a certain day we'd all resign uh, go a couple blocks away up to K Street to the campaign headquarters, pick up the phone and start calling those people. And, uh, and uh, hey, wasn't that a great meeting we had with the president? We were really hoping you could max out to the presidential campaign today. And, uh, of course, with new rules, new guidelines, uh, uh, you know, you can't fundraise it like that anymore. And there's a waiting period and, uh, and all that kind of thing. So it is, uh, it's, a, it's a different world today. But I started out doing that kind of fundraising and then and then uh, uh, moved into um, and if, if you don't remember the end result of, of, of that presidential campaign the year you were born, uh, President Bush lost. And, yeah, I was going to uh, say, seeing as I don't recognize any uh, quails. And President uh, uh, Clinton won. And uh, when they happens, they throw all the fundraisers out the window. And uh, I ended up going to work for a direct response company called USA Direct uh, that worked with hundreds of nonprofit organizations. And that's really where I learned direct response fundraising and uh, really began to figure out where these major donors came from. And and uh, one thing led to another, uh, spent some time uh, as chief development officer at Liberty University and uh, and and then uh, spent time at uh, at Mercy Ships uh, as mm-hmm. uh, as uh, VP of development there, and uh, you know really learned how to reach into a donor file, do the wealth research, identify people with capacity, and then work really hard to uh, to get in front of them. You know, I, yeah. I was trying to figure out before this this uh, discussion today just how many people I've met with over the last uh, thirty five years. It's I mean we're talking thousands. Oh you know, yeah, I've, I've I've met with over a hundred major donors a, a year on average, uh, and uh, and so you you know you, you you do the math and just over the last decade to say that I've met face to face with more than a thousand uh, yeah. donors of of uh, of nonprofit organizations and and uh, and you know it's an honor to serve them because that's really yeah. what we do, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. And I love the so I I always love getting to talk to people like you who have been doing this for, you know, 35 years. I mean, w- when you were getting started, people didn't even have cell phones. Um like well, right. talk about like I mean d- just how different no is No internet. It? I mean, I remember yeah. working at the National Republican Senatorial <laughs> Committee when we got our first computer. And uh, <laughs> that was that was uh uh, in the uh, late eighties, but, uh, but yeah, the, there was a time and, yeah. uh, and, you know, was it- building mailing lists anywhere where we would go to the voter registration office to the registrar in, in particular mm-hmm. States and particular cities and everything's on, on index cards and, yeah. and we're writing down names and addresses. Uh, and That's so, crazy. Uh, it's a crazy time. It's a crazy time, but, but in the end, um, uh, the end result of what we do, um, you know, it is about uh, getting in front of people that have capacity, yeah. finding out what their passion is, 
uh, and then and then seeing if you can serve them by presenting a need. Uh, yeah. And people always forget, you know, it takes big needs to get big gifts. You know, mm. the worst mistake we make in fundraising is asking millionaires for twenty five bucks, and nonprofit leaders do it every day. Um, and, and so our job is to is to find out where that donor is, find out uh, what their passion is, what they want to do, how they want to impact the world, and then uh, and then reach into that that uh, that bag of tricks and uh, and and identify that the, the right project for the right person, and that's yeah, really sure. where the magic happens. Yeah, so I've got kind of like uh, one of our recent episodes with Russell James. I just I have so many things I just want to ask you from like a, I want to learn stuff period, but we'll, we'll skip that for now. And let's just start. Cause I, I know you've got some incredible stories and oh, I, I, lots of them. Yeah. I'd love to hear. Um, yeah. Either, either just whatever's the top one on your mind or just, you know, uh, a, a, like one of the most meaningful experiences. Like I'm, I know you've had, some incredible conversations that have just like, you know, really impacted people either on the organization side of the table, on the donor side of the table. And in some instances, hopefully both. Um, so yeah, anything come to mind there? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot that comes to mind and, and I, I've met some incredible people, um, you know, that the challenge, and I think I just want to encourage fundraisers out there. Um, you know, again, one visit away, um, you know, if I had to put some metrics around that, and of course that's, that's what our business is all about. Mm-hmm. Um, out of every hundred visits I do, um, I'm going to run into three to five people mm-hmm. and, and that's really the metrics. So I got to meet with 95 people mm-hmm. to find, uh, these five people. And the whole reason they're on the planet is to give away everything they have. They really view themselves, and I don't mean to sound like a preacher today, but they really view themselves as an instrument that mm-hmm. uh, the God that we serve uh, or, or, or the force of nature pushes resources through so they can help those mm-hmm. in need. And when yeah. you find those kind of people, it is, it is a game. That's what it's all about. Uh, yeah, in that process of meeting with 100 people a year, um, I'm going to run into folks that can – write a $10,000 check or a $25,000 check. Uh, and, and, and that's their level of giving. Uh, most of them given, give to seven to 10 different charities a year. Uh, and, uh, you know, and the, the, and, 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 and the average uh, gift is, you know, is in that $10,000 range, you know, but when, you know, you talk about the thing that you most remember, you know, it's, it's, you know, it, it really is. It does tend to be, you forget about those people that told, you no, uh, yeah. and, uh, uh, and, and, and you think about those that, that did something pretty amazing. Um, you know, they always don't start out great. <laughs> uh, I remember working with mercy ships and, and meeting with, uh, um, contacted a, a guy that I knew was in real estate development. And, uh, he said, well, I've got a, I, I have a, a an office building I'd like you to look at because I'd like to make a gift of real estate. Hmm. Well, I'd be happy to do that. Jump on a plane, uh, uh, meet with him, meet with his financial people, tour a, a 20 story office building. Uh, this was going to be hmm. a mega gift. Um, yeah. 
and we were talking about a $20 million uh, building and uh, show me the appraisals, all that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, we get close to where uh, he's talking about making the gift. And of course, I had to ask the question, is there a clear title on this building? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you don't need a title because, you know, we've got renters. You're going to throw off a million dollars a year. Um, uh, it's going to take care of everything. I said, no, we're not in the real estate management business. You are. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I said, if we take that building, we're going to have to sell it. And uh, of course, you get to write off the fair market uh, the, the retail value of that building, the appraised value, uh, regardless of what we sell it for. But I can promise you we're going to sell it very quick and use this money as quick as we can to uh, to, to help people. Hmm. And uh, one thing came to another, ended up being an $18 million second note on that building. Um, hmm. that basically, he was going to hand to us <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and get the tax write-off as well. And I had to tell him no. He was furious. His team was furious. The staff was mad. I mean, it really was a very difficult situation. Um, uh, you know, but we didn't give up. And I encouraged him to um, to go with me on one of our uh, vision trips, uh, where I actually uh, took him on uh, one of our hospital ships. Um, and uh, he was meeting with a little girl that was going in to have uh have surgery. She had, she had what they call windswept legs. And it's, it's, it's a normal thing here in the United States for a child that has weak limbs when they're born to be in braces to where they straighten out. But if you don't have that kind of technology in places like Africa, um, uh, those bow legs can become very severely disfigured. And so this little girl was getting ready to go in to have surgery. And uh, this donor held her and talked to her and played with her before she went in for her surgery and, uh, and to see her come out uh, within 48 hours to be able to walk straight up. I mean, it was transformational for this guy. Uh, and um, anyway, anyway, that one thing led to another. He ended up liquidating some other real estate that didn't have the second that uh, uh, was clear and, t- and free. Uh, and then made cash donations, ended up being a $50 million donor. Uh, wow. Really with a, a almost a, a fist fight where they threw me out of the office. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> it, happens. it happens. And, uh, yeah, you know, and it's, you know, but, but he's one of those kind of people. He was at the stage in life where um, he really viewed his mission on this world uh, was to uh, empower other uh, nonprofits w- w- to be able to continue uh, his legacy after he's gone. And uh, that really was his motivating factor. You know, I, I think, I think of another guy, uh, his name's Bill and he's from Alabama. Um, and uh, I was just with him uh, uh, last fall. And uh, he told me he had retired six times and every time he retires, um, he said, he said, I just, he said, God forces me back into the business. He said, because I can't give money away that I don't have. And he said, so we literally every year give away every penny we make, uh, walk ministries and, and, and in his case, Christian causes. Uh, you know, you, you find people like that, that they view that this is their reason for being on the planet uh, is to help others. And again, it's not every it's not every visit, 
But if you don't do the hundred visits, you won't find the five. Uh, and, and, uh, and, you know, it, and, and that's really, you know, what it's all about, um, man. That that's so awesome. So I wanted to comment on the on the first guy with the building. There's there's a lot there, um, and one of the things I love is so there's this idea. I don't want to get too much into it because uh, people are so touchy about this subject. But there's this idea of like donor centric versus community centric fundraising and all this stuff. And one of the things people bring up when they have this conversation is that. You know, like if you're doing donor centric fundraising, that means you must just be bowing down and being a little like, you know, peasant compared to the donor. And that's just not true at all. Like, what your the story you just shared was a perfect example of, in my opinion, of when we are serving a donor, that doesn't mean I bow down to you. It means I help you uh, sometimes by helping you grow in generosity. And what you did in giving him the opportunity to see that like, hey, man, money is not the greatest thing in life. And you could get so much joy out of making a sacrifice to help little girls like this. Mm. Um that that was a, a very bold move by you, but also a, a a beautiful opportunity for him to to grow in generosity. Well, it, it really is because you know every meeting you have, um, you know every conversation you have, every meaningful contact you have uh, with a donor. Um, I mean, philanthropy is not natural; it is learned. And we're teachers, and our job is to is is to is, is to teach generosity, and 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 you have to kind of own that, and and then in that process, I mean, the other illustration I like to use with fundraisers is every meeting you have is a job interview, because you have to get to a point in the relationship where you're no longer working uh, for the charity you represent, but you're working for the donor. And you're becoming the donor's advocate, and you you reach the point in the conversation where uh, you stop and pivot and say, you know what, uh, you told me you'd like to do this or that. You want to help children, or or or, or you want to help uh, save animals' lives, or uh, or or you want to help get the gospel out to your community. I mean, whatever their passion is. Um, but you come to a point. I'd like to go back to our our program manager, I have to go back to CEO and see what our biggest needs are in that area and come back to you. How does that sound? And the donor always says, you do that? Absolutely. Well, guess what? I just got hired. I now work for the donor. I don't work for the charity. And that's really what you're looking for. You have to use every conversation, every time you sit down, uh, especially with a first time, uh, prospect or donor. It's a job interview and it's a chance for you to become their advocate to be able to, and to find out. So then that way they know, guess what? The next time I come to them, I'm not coming to them with an, with an ask from the charity, some canned pitch. I remember when I first went to work for uh, uh, one nonprofit, um, 
their major gift officers had these canned pitches, uh, and they everybody had had uh, uh, one of those uh, uh, IBM surfaces, uh, and all those pitches were on it with videos, and and that's what they would do is just go out and and go through the PowerPoint decks, page to page to page to page. And I said, the first thing we're going to do, I said I've got a new technology for you. I grabbed everybody's surface, sat them on the desk. Here's your new technology. Piece of paper and an ink pen. And you're going to ask people questions. And you're going to find out what their passion is, and 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 you know you're going to really interview folks and find out what they want to do. And if you can help them reach their goal, we're going to raise a lot of money. And it's 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 learning that that is our that's our job. Um, that's really what we're there for is to serve the donor. Um, does it does it help the, the nonprofit you work for? Absolutely. Uh, but, but the role of the major gift fundraiser is very different than anybody else on the development staff. Uh, you have to see your role as um, uh, working for that donor, not necessarily the charity. There are times, uh, just like I, I did with uh, uh, with this gentleman, Harry, that I mentioned, um, um, you know, where you do have to draw a line and say, that may help you, it doesn't help us. And, and to help them understand that and then come to grips to that. And, and then, and then uh, again, get back into that rhythm of how you can serve them. And because um, that's, that's how it happens. And, and, you know, it, it's, you demonstrate that in all kinds of ways. Um, you know, I think of another guy, I remember uh, meeting this gentleman uh, in, in Indiana. Um, his name was Dan Graniger. And, uh, number of years ago, but Dan, uh, um, drilled, um, um, water wells, um, in cornfields for irrigation. And, and that's what he did. That was his thing. And so I remember meeting him at the office. I'd never met him before. Uh, we had several small gifts come in, but I saw that he was a person of, of capacity that he, that he owned the business. And he said, why don't you go with me to one of my job sites? Sure. Jumped in his pickup truck. Off we went. Next thing I knew, I was standing ankle deep in mud in the middle of an Indiana cornfield while they're drilling water and plugging it into these irrigation systems. And he just thought that was hilarious. Uh, We had lunch together. uh, And I began to ask him questions about what he wanted to do. And what he wanted to do is provide clean water to the poor in third world countries. And, uh, and so, you know, we helped him do that, but, uh, but an interesting story, you know, having list taking the time to ask him his story, you know, why is that his passion? I mean, drilling water wells, especially when you've got to bring equipment to third world countries, uh, it costs money, you know, easily $15,000 to drill one well. And and he, he had a goal. He wanted to do a hundred wells a year. Uh, and, and, and to ask him what brought all that about. And he had an amazing story. He, 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 had, uh, he had heart surgery, and he was dead on the table a couple times. And, uh, and he, he, he and his wife prayed, God, if you'll let us, uh, if you'll let me live and continue this business, uh, we want to give everything to you. Again, he's that five out of 100. Uh, and totally working, totally running his business uh, so, that, uh, so that he could give it all away. 
and, uh, and, and those people are out there. You know, the other thing about Dan, very interesting story. Every time I pass a cornfield, I, I think of him because you, you've seen those big irrigation machines. They're, they're above ground sprayers. Well, the water has to come from somewhere, and it's not running from, uh, from a hose at the house. You know, it's running from a well that they've drilled in that cornfield. Um, but, um, but what Dan invented uh, uh, was to be able to, you know, a cornfield is usually square. But those those uh, big arms on that irrigation equipment usually just run in a circle. And he found out that he could get 50 percent more yield in the cornfield if he could figure out a way to stretch those arms out and get the corners and then bring them back to the circle, stretch them out and get the corners. And so he was a mechanical engineer. He figured out a way to do that, owns the patent on that. And uh, and uh, he's he's not standing in cornfields anymore. So. Yeah. So interesting guy. Yeah. So that's a great point too. And something I've, uh, you know, gone over with, with some of my clients is this idea that, you know, somebody might see a guy who, you know, a man or a woman that works in some industry that you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, they're really wealthy. <laughs> you know, he's like working in cornfields kind of thing. And, and so it's easy for us to assume, you know, oh, they send in their $5,000 a year. They work in the cornfield. They must be given us as much as they possibly could. But like I always remind people, you don't know. One of the things I bring up is they might hold the patent to some technology in you that industry or, you know, a thousand and, other ways somebody can be well. And I will tell you that, that you know, they're... In most cases, these high net worth people are hiding in your file. Um, in most cases, they end up not making a major gift to the nonprofit because the nonprofit could not figure out who they were. Um, and, and if you continue to treat them like a $25 donor, what high net worth people do is go away. And again, I don't think they think about it a lot. Uh, they do their giving just like they do their stock investments. They, they, their first gift, and I challenge folks, and I've done probably, um, including my time when I was with the Russ Reed Agency, probably 600 uh, donor file audits from 600 different nonprofits around the country. And I challenge them all. Uh, look at your top 100 individual donors. What was their first gift? And everybody says, oh, 10,000, 50,000, 100,000, 5,000. First gift. Hundred dollars, that's the average. And and again, they're they're just like their stock investments. They give a hundred dollars. Did they get thanked in a timely manner? Uh, did they get an impact report on their gift? If they did, they're going to add a zero to that check, and then it goes from oh wow a hundred to a thousand. And then guess what happens? Every three to five gifts, they add another zero, and and the next thing you know, you've got a ten thousand dollar donor. It's on your radar screen. Uh, now, if you don't make the effort, especially as it gets to that $1,000 to $5,000 range, to reach out and meet with them and to begin to treat them um, like a major donor wants to be treated. Uh, now, they all say, I don't want to meet. I don't want to be thanked. I don't want to be recognized. Uh, I don't want to see you. They lie. They lie, lie, lie. They do. They're investors. They want to see what you're doing. And, it, and it's a matter of being consistent, staying in front of them, 
Usually, oh, here, here's another one they lie about. I, I, I don't want you to come all the way out here just to meet with me. Right, right. Well, and, and, and you know, I always, uh, uh, the way I deal with that, I never have a visit just to meet with them. I, I always, even in the voicemail messages I leave, uh, it's always, um, I've got another meeting near you uh, since I'm going to be there anyway. Um, anyway, we can have a cup of coffee together. And then, and I've had people ask me, who else are you meeting with? You better have the list in front of you. Um, uh, and that better, you better make sure that's true, that you're not flying out one place to do one meeting, that you do your meetings in hubs, in, in groups. And, and it's, it's important. Again, they're investors. They don't want you wasting the company's money to come see them. But if you're going to be in that community anyway, they'll see you. And, uh, but that's again, you got to think of them as investors, not donors. For sure, man. So, you yeah, this is all awesome. One question I'm going to ask you before we go to more stories is: you've mentioned these. You got to see a hundred people to identify who these you know five people are or so. What are some of the? Obviously, you're getting in front of them, and that's a huge part of it. But what are some of the questions or ways that you're able to identify who these five people are? Because they don't just, you know, you show up to the meeting and they tell you on their own volition. How does how does that happen for you? Well, I mean, you use machine learning as best you can. Hmm. Um, you know, whether it's, um, you know, I like a tool donor search. I've used Blackbox WealthPoint. Uh, I've used Wealth Engine, uh, which is usually part of the Donor Perfect uh, CRM database. Um, uh, there, there's, there's a dozen or so of them that, that, that are all really, really good. Um, and they're priced pretty competitively. Um, um, you know, usually for between three and $5,000, you can get a tool that will, if you've got a name and address, you can get pretty accurate on household income and, and what assets are registered at the address you have. Now these machine learning tools, they're probably only depends on the tool. Um, 60, 70% accurate, but it's a real good indicator. Uh, and so you got to look at it as that and, and use it. The other thing I always do, and if you don't do this, um, um, it's a mistake, is I always do uh, uh, a Google or search on the address you have. You can tell a lot when, you know, with that aerial shot, you see their home, you see their swimming pool, you see what cars are in the driveway. You can tell a lot about their net worth just from that if you don't have any of these research tools at all. Uh, you know, I, I work with international organizations and, 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 you know, they don't have the kind of wealth research we have in the United States. Uh, and I tell them, use Google Earth. Find out where they live. That'll tell you what assets are there. And, uh, and, 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 and so that's the first thing I do. Um, you know, these types of um, machine learning tools that are out there, wealth research, um, you know, it's amazing what people are coming, what they're able to come up with. But you have to remember um, that, that some of the information is compiled. So if they apply for a loan, um, um, and a lot of, it, 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 and people are shocked that I say it this way, but it's absolutely true. If they don't check the right box on that loan application, uh, all the assets and all the information that they list, their business income, their their uh, household income, um, all their assets, all the kind of stuff they put to qualify for that loan, 
before that loan is approved or denied, the wealth profiler has the data if they don't check the right box. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, I mean, it's pretty accurate. It's pretty accurate. And, uh, and now the, the people with the highest net worth, um, the way to move off these wealth screens um, is to uh, register assets at multiple addresses somewhere else than where they reside. Uh, and so they're only giving you their home address um, and their assets are registered somewhere else. Um, uh, now, tax records are, of course, the first thing the government does is 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 uh, sell this information to to wealth profilers, but but uh, tax records are the biggest way they're able to identify these assets and and come up with corroborating evidence. So it's registered at this address to you under this social security number at that at the same address you reside at. The odds are that's your asset. So it's uh, so so, so th- but that's how these tools work. Um, use them. Um, you know, I, I always tell folks, and again, I hate to sound like a preacher today. Uh, we all pray that God would send us a million dollars. God only sends people. And it's our job to be a good steward. Every person that comes our way, every new donor added to the database, there needs to be a process to qualify them to see if they're, uh, you know, a high capacity donor or a regular donor. And, and, and if they're a high capacity donor, you really want to create a track for them that that is um, uh, where you're not downgrading their giving opportunity. You know, the first thing we do in direct response is move to an open ask. Instead of those three suggested ask amounts that are built upon their last gift, if they're a millionaire and their last gift was $100, I don't want to ask them for $100, $150, $200. I don't want to do that. Uh, and so and you just use the open ask, a blank, where they fill in the amount themselves. Uh, so there's things you can do in direct response to have them upgrade faster, but uh, but 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 do the wealth research. It's worth the money. Um, but but again, the best wealth research there is is with our own eyes and ears, and it's it's meeting with people, finding out where else they're giving. They will tell you if you ask them. You have to. Be, Become their advisor. There are many people they don't make a gift to another nonprofit unless they talk to me, um, and and they really see me as their philanthropic advisor, just like they have a financial advisor, just like they have somebody that helps them with their real estate investments and manage their properties. Um, well, they have people like me uh, that that help them with their philanthropy. Tell me about um, any stories come to mind, uh, either a visit that happened in a particularly odd place or something just really funny that, uh, that's happened. Well, probably the oddest appointment I had was near Columbus, Ohio, just North of Columbus. And, um, and I was working, doing work at the time for an organization uh, called world health. And they, uh, uh, they had an outreach program, um, uh, and, and, uh, and so we were, we had, this new donor came in, uh, made a donation, and, and uh, uh, I didn't have wealth research on him, um, but he, he was asking, he, he immediately followed up with an email asking questions about our program. So I called, and he said, well, you know, I do own a business, 
I have to be at work early. Um, I'd be willing to meet you. Um, um, but I, I need to meet you around five o'clock in the morning. And so I, I'd never, you know, and this, this was maybe 10 years ago, you know, in the previous 25, 30 years, I had never had a donor request a 5 a.m. meeting. But, uh, but, but I said, hey, I'm happy to, you know, so what am I doing? I'm sleeping in a hotel room anyway, so, so we'll get up and have, have a cup of coffee together. So he gave me the name of this coffee shop, and uh, like I said, just north of Columbus. And, and, uh, and so I showed up about 4.30. They were open, sat down, got there early, staked out my table, uh, kind of looking out at the road uh, for my guy to get there. I'd never met him before. And uh, next thing I know, clip, clop, clip, clop, clip, clop, horse and buggy pulls up. And this man, um, uh, you know, in homemade clothes, Amish. Yes. Uh, with the beard, the hat, the whole setup. Uh, Boom. Out, comes in. <laughs> and says, Roy, I bet I'm not your normal donor, am I now? You know, in a Dutch uh, uh, accent. And, um, and it was just a wonderful meeting. Uh, this guy um, was part of, uh, you know, the Amish. Uh, the Amish have different uh, variations of guidelines. He didn't have electricity in his home. Uh, didn't own a car. Uh, but at the shop, which happened to be uh, a Yoder cheese factory. He had a Yoder dairy uh, and he actually owned uh, 20 tractor trailer trucks that take cheese to grocery stores up and down the East coast. Um, Mr. The shop had electricity and a computer and he was searching for people that did outreach to, 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 to Muslim communities around the world and finding his passion um, you know, in finding out about his businesses, he had more, many businesses, um, and how that first meeting ended, I, you know, I said, you know, talk to me about, uh, I said, you know, of course we're willing to take a cash gift. And, and I think he, he brought a check for me that day for 10 grand, I think, uh, wow. for meeting him so early. Um, <laughs> but, but he, uh, uh, but we began talking about the different ways that he would like to invest in a nonprofit that, met his passion. And uh, he said, one of the things that I've began doing uh, in my family is we're selling the mineral rights to our farms. So that because they have, they found oil uh, on our, on our land. And so he said, I'd like to put together a family and set up an investment group where we named your nonprofit um, uh, as um, a beneficiary for a certain percentage of, of all the oil subsidiaries that, that, that spin out of this new business line. So, I mean, yeah. this was a very, you, you couldn't tell it by looking at them. You know, just <laughs> Dan standing in the ankle deep mud, uh, drilling water wells, uh, this, this Amish guy that, that, that didn't have electricity. You couldn't tell it by looking at him. Very sophisticated investor and was looking for nonprofits uh, that he can invest in that would grow alongside him. And, uh, and so you, you just never know. You just never know. You know, it, it is, uh, you know, it's about finding that donor's passion uh, and, and, uh, and meeting them there and then becoming, becoming their advocate. Yeah, I've got, a, I've got a kind of random question for you, potentially. Um, so you've had a really successful career in major gifts. 
have you ever have you ever run an organization? Have you ever been like the president, CEO, or executive director of something? I really haven't of a, of a nonprofit. I've I've always you know kind of stayed in this development lane. Yeah. So I think so. The reason I bring it up is a lot of people have this uh, thought for whatever reason that like oh you know Bob's really good at fundraising. We should make him the leader of the organization. That happens like all the time. And I've seen it uh, not work out um, as much as people would want it to. So tell me about some of your thoughts on that. And like, like I'm, I'm sure it's come up in your own career. Um, you, have to, yeah. you have to understand what, what you're good at. And, and, and the challenge is what you're going to find, especially with frontline fundraisers. So I'm not necessarily talking about your um, direct response fundraising people, your digital fundraising people, your annual giving manager, I wouldn't put them in this category. But your frontline fundraisers, they tend to be best in the field because they're not as good in the office. And it really is um, kind of the, the yin and yang of that, uh, of, of, of that personality trait. Um, it's not always the case. There are exceptions to that. Um, uh, but, but it does tend to be sometimes the worst thing you can do for somebody that's very good in the field is pull them out of the field. Um, I mean, I have to tell you every day I'm in the office, we're losing money. And, uh, and, and if you really view the role of your frontline fundraising team, whether it's people that do corporate relations sponsorships, people that do uh, uh, event fundraising, your major gift officers, um, certainly, uh, but when they're not in the field um, and they're tied down doing management or administrative tasks, um, the organization is, is going to pay a price for that. And so, again, I'm not saying it can't happen, it, and I'm not saying it doesn't happen. It certainly does. Uh, there are some great CEOs that are very good fundraisers. Uh, but many, many times, um, the people, the reason the people that people excel in the field is because they they intentionally don't get tied down with the administrative and management task, and that's and that is the the challenge. Believe me, um, when I like last week, um, uh, you know, you're talking to a guy that still does it, not just speaks about it, not just trains about it. I, I still do it, you know. I mean, last week, you know, I I reached out to eighty people, eighty emails, uh, you know, I I. Uh, um, left uh, 80 voicemails, uh, uh, you know, and I had uh, about 25 people uh, engage with me, you know, where I had meaningful contact, interaction back and forth, either yeah. by, by email or, or actual callback. And, uh, and, and so, um, you know, believe me, you know, to, to, to dial that phone that many times, knowing that most people are going to, say get lost and not call you back. Uh, and of the 25 people I engage with, you know, more than half of them said no or not now or stop calling me. Uh, and, and to, you know, even at, even at age 63, I've been doing this over 30 years. That still sucks. I don't yeah. like if I can come up with something else to do uh, other than do that. Yeah. Believe me. Oh, oh, wait a minute. I can work on these files I can, 
do my prospect research. I can uh, talk to my support team. I can talk to the marketing people. If I could do any of that fun stuff, yeah. I'll do that. Heck, even filling out an expense report is more uh, exciting than, uh, than getting told no. <laughs> right. But, but again, you have to be disciplined. You know, you block those windows out and you say, you know what, this is it. You know, and I, and I encourage folks to rotate your call times. The big mistake frontline, frontline fundraisers make is, is doing their, their, their calling and emailing during the same time of, of the day or the same day every week. Don't do that. You want to, you want to do, you know, you want to rotate it. And, uh, and again, at least one evening a week is when you should be doing some outreach, not every evening, but, uh, but, but I encourage folks to rotate the time of day and they're outbound calls in order to increase the number of contacts you get. But, you know, it's, it's, you have people that, that, and again, I've met with people that, on paper, man, it all made sense. Uh, they, they had the right assets. Uh, I identified other nonprofits that they'd made five-figure, six-figure gifts to. Uh, uh, you know, they, they drive the new car. They, you know, they got the home, the vacation home, all the toys, uh, a great business or two, uh, great income. Uh, uh, they've already made a donation to us, and I meet with them. The philanthropic intent is not there. You're not on their short list. And, uh, you know, you're just on their testing list. And, and again, you're one of the stocks that they're still waiting to prove. And so, and so it's timing's everything. I mean, I've, I've met with people trying to get them to open up about their passion. They won't tell me. Again, I don't waste, uh, I don't like to waste my time or theirs. Uh, I'm not going to pull out that PowerPoint deck and, and roll through the pages and make an ask and, and sign here. You know, I'm not selling used cars. Uh, um, that's not what I do. You know, if they're not ready to step up and talk about a significant gift and, and tell me about their fashion or what they want to do, I move on as quick as I can. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's part of it is like some people just for whatever reason, generosity is not uh high on their priorities and you know some people like there's one person in particular i can think of that you know has all the money in the world but that is the most important thing in the world to him Mm. and like like i have the money and that is where my value comes from Mm. and so he was also the cheapest person i've ever been around and (laughs) It's just like like I, I I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do you know probably a, a decade's worth of therapy on this person and you know unlock the uh... move on my my favorite word and the only way I have survived in this business is next and uh, again out of those out of those hundred visits uh, you know you're probably going to have thirty or forty that that make a significant gifts you're going to have three to five that make a transformational gift uh, and, and you're going to have 50 or 60 to, that their philanthropic intent, their donative intent uh, to make up a word donative. Uh, but, but, uh, but, but they're not ready to give. Now maybe they give to other charities, but they're not ready to give to you. And that's part of what, you know, that's part of what that job interview is about. 
Uh, you need to find out whether they're ready to hire somebody. Are they ready to hire you? Uh, are they are they ready to put you to work pursuing their philanthropic interest at that at the nonprofit that you're employed by? And, yeah, uh, for sure. And some people aren't. Yeah, indeed. Well, Roy, we're coming up on time here. Any uh, final thoughts you'd like to share with everybody or anything you want to tell people about uh, resources, things you want to promote? No, just, uh, you know, again, if I can help you, I'd love to do that. But, but again, all you have to do is reach out to RoyJones.org and, uh, and you can find me there. Um, and it's uh, really easy to get to all over social media, but RoyJones.org, you can reach me and I'd be honored, honored to help. So, so thank you again, Kevin, for this opportunity. Yeah, well, thanks so much for coming on, Roy. I know this is going to be a really popular episode. I know you, you've done some stuff with Andrew Olson in the past and authored some books together and stuff like that. And his episode has been one of our most popular ones. And I'm sure this is going to be right there up with it. So thanks for sharing all these incredible stories and uh, look forward to talking soon. It's my honor. Thank you. That was Roy Jones. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. I hope this episode has been helpful to you. If it has, please leave a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. And thank you so much to everyone that has. We now uh, have over 100 five-star ratings, which is pretty awesome. And just really appreciate everybody doing that. It really helps, you know, get when people are looking for fundraising podcasts, the more ratings and reviews along with you know a few other metrics place this higher in the in the rankings and so it just gets out to more people that way also please you know share it with other fundraisers you know just that like one-on-one uh, spreading of the message helps a lot um, and so yeah thank you all so much for listening I hope this episode has inspired you to schedule more visits after all you're just one visit away from having to say no to a 20 million dollar building and then eventually, receiving a $50 million gift.